And then when I got to post and I literally had to sit there night after night, weekend after weekend, writing like 7,000 comments, <laughs> I was like, fuck, like this better be worth it, you know? Welcome to Sincast, presented by CinemaSins. Everybody, welcome to the Sincast. This is Chris Atkinson from Cinema Sins, joined by Barrett Share from Cinema Sins. Hello. Today we have a very special guest. It's director Eugene Kotliarenko, who uh, has done a uh, uh, movie called Spree, coming out on August fourteenth. Which we're doing this interview on the twelfth, so it's two days for us. Um, and uh, it stars Joe Keery from uh, Stranger Things. And, uh, and, uh, it is, uh, it's, it's tapping into the zeitgeist, right? I mean, I hope so. I mean, <laughs> I, I think I, I'm going to go out on a limb and say it's an extremely contemporary film. And I'm going to go out on a limb and say that I think teenagers and, you know, y- younger people will really connect with it, or at least those are, um, you know, my goals. Yeah. Um, y- you know, I, I was sitting there trying to, trying to think of what, how I would describe this movie, and I, I, I was thinking this is this is like a a movie about a mass killing, but instead of a gun being used, it's sort of the crave for fame that is killing everybody in this movie, and yeah. uh, and uh, and so uh, talk a little bit about where you got your idea for this for this movie. Yeah. So. Um... It started with my co-writer, Gene McHugh. He came to me and he said, you know, like, I think we could make a really powerful sort of like minimal horror film um, with the idea of a kind of rideshare Uber driver going around and killing his passengers. And, you know, the share economy, gig economy, whatever, like we just trust people to get into their cars because they have a five-star rating. There is an inherent, like, you know, horror and terror built Mm -hmm. into that and so i thought yeah this could be good but like really why does he do it is he driven by a certain ideology and so it took us a second you know spitballing ideas to kind of realize well what if he's just doing it you know for the clout for attention for the likes Mm -hmm. and um that you know when we realized that he was maybe thirsty for social media virality became like you know you have to synthesize these two ideas right the inherent Um, terror of getting into a car with someone that you don't know and something that we've normalized and now take for granted and the sort of like addiction that we all have where the little monster lives inside of all of us and says hey when you wake up in the morning don't you want to see if anyone gave you any virtual love don't you want to see if you matter and as you as you go out through your day every single experience you have you question oh should i meet should i post this? Should I mediate my experience for attention right now so that I can feel good about myself? So those two ideas kind of were the origin of the film. Um, And, you know, it's in the tradition, I hope, of like, you know, kind of social, uh, of uh, media satires. So movies like Network or um, Ace in the Hole, to mm-hmm. die to die for mm-hmm. you know uh, a, a face in the crowd right like a face yeah. in the crowd a face in the crowd and to die for explicitly are movies where and and also king of comedy are movies where you know people use media and exploit sensationalism you know violence and prurience and all these things 
for attention because they know that's what gets attention in the sort of media landscape. And so, you know, Spree is very much in the tradition of those sort of media critique films. I'm glad that you said to, to die for, because I was sitting there, that was the movie that kept coming up in my head uh, during this because uh, you know, Nicole Kidman's uh, Suzanne Stone character in that movie mm-hmm. is always talking about how you're just not anybody unless you're famous. And, uh, and she is trying everything that she can to get to that. She thinks this, you know, like this small little thing is going to get her boosted in the, into the uh, stratosphere, but it doesn't. But the, uh, the other, uh, the other ones that I was thinking of is there's an episode with uh, uh, Bryce Dallas Howard of Black Mirror. Uh, that has the the whole rating system yeah. uh, thing uh, that uh, you know people's worth are are based on that rating, and then uh, and and I don't mean to say this because you know you know your movie is derivative of this <laughs> your no, movie no. Is, your movie is completely we're, original. We're all making um, observations, you know, about um, the world we live in, right? So I like Black Mirror very much. I actually thought that the Choose Your Own Adventure Bandersnatch thing was probably my favorite. Mm. movie of 2019 or 18 or whatever came out yeah but um you know it's that in that show is speculative fiction right it's it's kind of sci-fi and we're living in that nightmare now and that's kind of what spree is about you know i one thing that you know is horrifying that we take for granted is this um operating principle that sharing is inherently good you know, and that's what kind of aligns Kurt's character with the uh, Nicole Kidman character in To Die For, that she believes that no matter what she does, it's towards an end game, which is good, which is, you know, getting her on air and getting mm-hmm. her voice out there and, and, and whatever kind of clout that accrues her. And Kurt, you know, he is engaging in a tutorial, which is like inherently good, regardless of the fact that tutorial is about how to kill people for attention. Right. You know, he's not thinking about that. It's all about end game. It's all about numbers and sort of, you know, um, virality. And, you know, that's um, a sickness that we all kind of lives inside of us to some extent that once we participate in this social media kind of attention economy, we are all now imbued with that desire to get the dopamine hits and um, get the attention. And, um, you know, oftentimes don't really consider what immoral things or what kind of, you know, shameless things we're doing for that attention. What's odd uh, if, I mean, I guess it's not odd, but it's uh, what's, what's interesting about watching your movie is, if you, it, aside from the fact that this person is is uh, doing horrendous things to get likes and and attention and everything, it's exactly how uh, a normal channel would uh, would get likes and attention and everything through their content. Uh, that that there was, it doesn't matter how interesting your content is. It doesn't matter. Uh, if it's the best thing that you've ever done or whatever, you end up needing influencers to get to a uh, a, a certain larger point. audience. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The uh, the YouTube a long time ago, I believe there was even a TED talk on this. Of course, um, the yeah the, uh, the, the one of the things that the, that guy at that TED talk said was here's here's the video of Double Rainbow Guy. And it's, it's, you know, a video that's hundreds of millions of views. So a lot of people would look at that and go, wow, how did this ever, 
get that way. And he showed a chart and it showed that it, nobody watched it at all for two years until mm-hmm. Jimmy Kimmel found it. Mm-hmm. And Jimmy Kimmel brings it up on his show. And then suddenly that's where you get your viral hit. It's, it's the, it's the truth about everything. And unfortunately you see a lot of these people, you see a lot of people who are famous on YouTube and everything. And you wonder how did they get that way? And it's usually some sort of combination of that, but it makes other regular people go, well, if they can do that, I can do that. Where, where's my likes and attention? Well, yeah. So look, the promise of the early internet and, you know, on some level is like to democratize everyone's sort of participation and communication. Right. So at the 20th century, you know, you had your, corporate hegemony over like all of media. Right. And so what the internet and social media promised was that everyone would have a voice now and it would be on an equal playing field and everyone is just as, um, you know, possible to get the likes. And that's obviously not the case, right? The reason we call people influencers is because they have a gatekeeping capacity, right? They have a built in audience now and they get to decide what is and isn't like important. The other sort of thing that goes along with that is like, you know, the narrative of, you know, sharing um, is that you are at the center of your own universe. Like, you know, you are the main character in your own narrative. And while that is ostensibly true, um, if you have no moons or planets revolving around your sun, Mm -hmm. um, space can be a lonely place, you know? Um, And so, um, you know, and you start seeing other universes and other people's narratives that are extremely popular, you start feeling really inadequate and shitty and bad about yourself and look for ways to start feeling, you know, relevant or, or or like Kurt says in the movie, if you don't document yourself, you don't exist, you know? Mm. And that's the proposition and sort of framework that we're all operating under um, that, you know, the movie is sort of asking the viewer to like kind of question as it's entertaining them, right? Like, I mean, there's really heavy issues in the movie, but at the end of the day, I think the movie is like just fun to watch and like kind of like wild and stuff. Yeah. Sure. What's emblematic about that is the comments uh, in the in the Periscope feed or the the uh, the live feed mm-hmm. or whatever it is of of encouraging this sort of behavior, asking to go you know further with it and you know liking it and very there's occasionally a comment like. Are you serious? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, that's that's dangerous. <laughs> Something yeah. like that. But by and large, they're like, keep it going, you know. And it's it's feeding the beast, as I think you may have said, uh, to 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 make him. In a, at one point, uh, there's a question of whether he'll go even further to uh, keep this going and actually make it bigger and make it more palatable for this wider audience. Yeah, no, I mean, Kurt is constantly making calculations about like what is what will help him go viral, even in the first scene. You know, I don't want to throw it, give it away, but like the behavior of the first passenger, um, he's like, well, I will never go viral if I allow you to like say and do these horrible right, things. Right. Um, um, you know, and, and, and he doesn't have any moral quandary against like, you know, I'll just say right now, like this white supremacist guy in his car, he has no moral issues with it. It's just that he knows that, that stuff is toxic. That stuff yeah. gets people canceled. I mean, we wrote this like five years ago, but I think it still obviously wow. as, well, as relevant today. Yeah. Um, but also the comments, right? So the movie is presented as a live stream, right? And it's about, it's Kurt presenting this live stream tutorial about how to go viral. And for me, 
um, in the earliest days of the script and pre-production, I knew that, you know, it would, the comments would be so important. And then when I got to post and I literally had to sit there night after night, weekend after weekend, writing like 7,000 comments, <laughs> I was like, fuck, like this better be worth it, you know? And, yeah. and, and, and I think it is. I mean, you know, viewers can decide, but if you pause the movie at any given point and you just look at like the seven comments that are up at screen on screen at that moment, they will all make sense of what's going on in the movie. They will provide humor. They will provide cringe factor and they will provide like, kind of like almost like the voice of the viewing audience of the movie. Um, But also a really corrupt and immoral version of that, because that's what happens online. You know, you just want to egg on sensational behavior because that's what we get off on as voyeurs, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, man, those comments uh, are are a second movie onto themselves, aren't they? Um, <laughs> you know, they, it's hard it's hard to know exactly, uh, and, and this is what's going to give this movie such great repeat viewing value is that you know it's hard to know whether to look at the action on screen or just look at what the comments are, and the comments the comments are as horrifying, probably. Uh, I mean. <laughs> You yeah, know, no, maybe maybe is there maybe nobody's killing anybody with those comments, but they kind of are in some other uh, you know extended way. But um, there there there's there is a horrifying nature to those in in on multiple levels. First off, nobody believes this is real at all, um, yeah. and 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 I I understand why they wouldn't. Why would anybody do this? There was, there's no you know there doesn't seem to be any sense to that whole thing. But um, but yeah, it, it, none of this seems real. And I tell you what a what a brilliant stroke of this movie is is having a character like Bobby Basecamp in here, who is a known prank YouTuber, uh-huh. um, mm-hmm. which makes everything uh, just uh, compile on that whole thing. Uh, and uh, so yeah, um, I'm not I'm sure glad, if I'm, I'm asking you a question, up. but <laughs> you know, I, I'm glad I'm glad you picked up on that. And um, that was like another specific niche of a kind of influencer YouTube culture. I wanted to, you know, make fun of a sort of like exploitative prankster who is mm-hmm. peddling in like sort of very immoral behavior, but then just says, it's just a prank. It's just a prank, <laughs> you know, right. um, because that is basically almost like, epigrammatic of um you know the immorality of sensationalism a clickbait you know that is basically walking clickbait these prank these pranks that go too far because they're just about getting attention and and you know not really entertainment as we understand it yeah you've nailed the tone i've i've been very familiar with not only the 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 big ones the the paul brothers and all that but you know the lesser wide widely known YouTubers that that traffic in this. Not only do you get the content right, but the uh, the the wide eyed enthusiasm that Joe Keery brings to this character, mm-hmm. which I, I assume you work you must have worked with them to develop this, yeah. uh, is is spot on to these people. The, I, I watch these guys and and women and girls, and and I'm wondering like where do you get this energy to just constantly be loud and up there and out there and all that stuff. <laughs> and, you know, everything is sick and bro and blah and bullshit and blah and all that stuff. <laughs> and he nails this, uh, as yeah. does Bobby Basecamp's uh, character too. Um, and, and so that character in particular rang as, as 
artificial as the character is, it rang perfectly true to what you see on the actual YouTube. You know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. I mean, we're constantly being forced to perform and present, uh, you know, like a kind of high energy image because we know that garners attention on at least a popular level. And so, yeah, I mean, Kurt is this bouncy, cheery monster, right, who sort of naively believes he's helping people. And that is a lot of where the horror comes from. And, um, you know, Bobby character is a bit more of like a bully and stuff. And, you know, he but he also has to be like a high energy bully. (laughs) Um, So, (laughs) um, but, you know, but but one of the things that fascinated me about that is, you know, Bobby has that homeless hero video. And, you know, not to spoil it, but like it's totally fake. And that has happened a few times. There have been people who have orchestrated these like, you know, stunts with um, almost people where it looks like, oh, they're helping them. But it's actually all been entirely orchestrated. And, you know, that sort of scam on the sort of um, belief you know, that we place and the trust that we place into visual representation and into like our kind of informal media culture that we have now is, um, you know, another way that people become famous. That's, you know, probably not as horrific as violence and murder, but, um, you know, also morally bankrupt, right. To sort of prey upon, upon people's sympathy and prey upon people's, um, sort of charity. And and Josh, Josh, who played Bobby, the actor, Josh Ovai, he was extremely popular in Vine. And that's sort of how I got, um, you know, smart to him. Oh, really? Oh, wow. Yeah, he's super, uh, super funny Vine um, creator who then became kind of YouTube um, make creator, too. And, um, you know, he completely understood those types of super like hype beasty um immoral kind of fuck boys that he was able to make fun of really well i love i love those little clips too of him uh when they're building his character and everything and he's talking about you know uh, he's like i'm I'm in my home theater thanks to you guys (laughs) and he's talking about he also talks about the pool incident which was like explicit reference to like this thing with dan bilzerian who's yeah. one of like, the wor- worst types of like kind of cloud uh, chaser influencer types where um you know a pool incident where a girl got hurt and he's like kind of passing the buck and passing the blame to someone else yeah um we had a we had a lot of fun doing that with with josh and with joe i mean joe dove extremely deeply into his character prep and we watched tons and tons of videos of you know basically single digit YouTube um, accounts of people who, you know, desperately were trying to become uh, influencers. And I mean, the irony of, uh, of the Kurt character, which we pulled from a lot of these people is imagine someone who has no following, no views, offering you a tutorial on how to grow your following or how to go viral. I mean, the irony is completely lost on, on the people making it. And it's extremely sad. And it's also um, extremely disturbing especially if a person like that decided to engage in, you know, murder. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, it, the, what's ironic to me is you guys uh, exploring these single digit subscriber view accounts and they're seeing, you know, their fifth view and it's you guys who are making a movie about them. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, Oh, Hey, I got a new view. Oh yeah. They're, they're researching about the whole. Well, I'll just leave anonymous <laughs> who we looked at, but I will say, you know, for every Logan Paul or successful influencer you've heard of, there's a hundred thousand people trying to do literally the exact same thing with the exact mm-hmm. same script, with the exact same sort of like, you know, 
signify, like you were saying, you know, like, oh, they have to be high energy or they have to say bro, or they have to kind of wrap up a video in a certain way. They're all operating from like this script and they just don't have the like it factor or je ne sais quoi or the originality to really become a successful but that doesn't stop them from trying that doesn't stop them from posting every day and you know that um impulse is really an indicator of where our society is and where what we've all bought into you know and um i think it's worth making fun of and it's worth pointing out and it's worth you know kind of re-examining in a narrative way it's pretty obvious uh, that Joe Carey got into this character because, it, you know, and, and there's a lot of other like physical uh, things that he does in this and his hair and even mm. is even a character in this. Uh, the just, you know, if you're used to seeing a guy and I've seen Joe Carey in, in only a couple of things. I saw him in Stranger Things. I saw him in Molly's Game. Um, the, the just seeing sort of a transformation and just complete different a completely different person. Um, this is kind of, you know, this is a, an incredible uh, performance uh, that he's putting on here. And, you know, it might be a, you know, sort of a, a telling of what kind of uh, future he may have, uh, I think, uh, to really break out, I think. Uh, I mean, he's broken out a- enough with Stranger Things, obviously, but I think uh, as, you know, someone to get tapped to do a lot of other more interesting projects down the line. Yeah, let me just say, because, like, I'm biased, obviously, but, like, Joe is, like, a top, top-level actor. Like, I mean, the the his ability to, you know, extract pathos and really subtle things that connect with viewers from moments of, you know, cringy comedy or from moments of kind of like monstrous behavior mm-hmm. is really special. And he was constantly creating things on set. Um, you know, a lot of the actors in a way are left to their own devices in the car because I'm in a follow car and with a walkie talkie and some, you know, sort of um, monitors and stuff, but we let them go for multiple takes, you know, and I would just give them notes in between takes, but it's not like a normal movie. We were doing coverage between mediums and close-ups and master shots and da, da, da. And so you constantly are reassessing performance, you know, for the little increment of a, of a scene. These were entire scenes that, you know, were allowed to kind of, flow naturally and the creation that joe brought to each and every take um was so inspiring and impressive and um you know i have full confidence that um joe will you know like have a very strong career and you know to me to anyway people will see the movie and they'll just feel the performance but like you know on stranger things which is a really good show and obviously is full of a bunch of really good performers. That's an ensemble cast. Mm-hmm. So you can't really, and they all are good, but you can't really understand the depths of their skill level. Right. And uh, here, Joe carries the movie from beginning to end. Sure. Um, There's nowhere to hide, right? I mean, he, he's essentially the movie. It's almost like Locke. Uh, the, the Tom Hardy movie that came out a few years ago that uh, where it's, it's, by and large only set in that car and from that vantage point where you've got all these cameras set up. Um, So there's a lot of pressure on there. Don't want to be a hater, but I don't like that movie. No, really? (laughs) Well, you know, I wanted to watch certain things that, um, 
you know, felt like, oh, working in the mode of like, you know, the restraint of what we were trying to do in the movie, like, you know, minimally you're in the car for, let's say 70% of this film. And I just couldn't get into that one. Like mm-hmm. it just, it just, not only did it feel like trapped, I, it just felt boring kind of to me. <laughs> okay. um, but, but, there, but there is a movie that I, I can, you know, shout out, which is way more like, let's say obscure than that film, but I found to be way more engaging, which is, um, it's called Taxi Tehran by uh, Jafar Parnahi. You know, and he's an Iranian filmmaker who was basically banned from making movies in his country because he's like mm. too political. Mm-hmm. And so he's made one film in his apartment called This Is Not a Movie. And then he made this other film called Taxi Tehran where basically he put uh, cameras in his car and uses it as sort of like a, you know, informal cab around the city. And it's just constantly innovative the way it's asking you questions about whether it's real or staged about like, you know, who's controlling the camera and about like certain meta qualities, whether he's acting or not. And um, just constantly keeps you on your toes as a viewer visually without the inherent sort of genre trappings of a movie like Locke, which is ostensibly like a thriller. You sure. Know? Yeah. I got to check that out. Yeah. yeah you watch it. That's a movie that I had a list, you know, of movies that I shared with the cast and crew. And that was one of them, along with, you know, some of the movies we mentioned before, but also a movie like Man Bites Dog. Do you know that one? Yeah, yeah. A mockumentary about a serial killer or, um, you know, Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, which has all all of these weird. Very much. (laughs) Yeah, all these weird registers of comedy in something that, you know, is horrifying, but does not play like a normal horror film, you know, and that's kind of what we wanted to do too. A new year, time for new growth. Grow your education and skills with Herzing University. Our online behavioral health programs fit your schedule and time from an eight-month diploma program in health and human services to a 36-month bachelor's in psychology. Grow your behavioral health career with us wherever you are in your education. Your future starts now at Herzing University. Visit us online at herzing.edu or text HEALTH to 85109. Online at herzing.edu or text HEALTH to 85109. And, well, and at first, because the first uh, victim is so starkly political or whatever you want to call it, mm-hmm. I thought this was going along the track of a modern retelling of The Last Supper, um, which, you know, I don't know if you know that movie at all. But, no, I don't. I don't. Um, the, the Last Supper is about a bunch of uh, self-proclaimed liberals who uh, don't feel like they... Um, they don't feel like they are making any changes in the world and they believe that uh, conservatives uh, when they get in office they they do all the they uh, they actually take action they they do what they say that they're, they're going to do and they uh, they get an unexpected guest who has a lot of right-wing views and they accidentally kill that person it's bill Paxton. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, so they kill Bill Paxton, and then after after they you know decided to cover it up, they all agree that they're going to uh, they're going to invite uh, other right wing people that they've seen on TV and in the newspapers and everything over to dinner and give them poisoned wine uh, when uh, when they when they're unable to change their views and everything. So when, yeah, the, when that first victim came up, I was like, oh, OK, we might have a little modern retelling here. But it, well, it doesn't. I, yeah, but I do think one thing about, you know, the first act of the film with the writers and stuff 
is that, you know, Kurt is doing these horrific things, but at the same time, the people that he's sort of like dispatching, um, you don't really mind seeing right. them you know, disappear off the face of the earth. Um, and so, you know, that kind of complicates the moral uh, position of an audience member towards Kurt, you know, um, because there's, I don't want to say a sense of like heroism to him, but he seems a little bit more palatable than the people he's getting rid of. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and then, and then things get twisted a little more once Jesse enters the picture and then a little bit more once you find out certain things that, you know, maybe he's not going viral, even though he presents as he is going viral. So um, that was definitely intentional um, to kind of add some sort of like, you know, political and social commentary to those first people, because, you know, you have your white supremacist, you have your kind of like r- real estate flipper who's like gentrifying neighborhoods. Right. And you have your sort of like misogynistic pickup artist guy who's just yeah. like a pussy hound or whatever. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a nice entry into that where you, you almost feel for him. And it, it, helps you connect with the character while he gets more and more grotesque. Yeah. Yeah. And I think like, that's correct in a way, obviously like when people watch, I wouldn't want Kurt is a loser at the end of the day. And I don't think any of the things he's doing are fucking cool or sexy or like, you know, most movies that have like these serial killer characters or like are hyper violent aestheticize it, you know, and perfectly good satirical movies. Like, Natural Born Killers or Clockwork Orange, you know, the latter being a movie that I really revere, mm-hmm. um, also really aestheticized these acts of violence. And I just wanted uh, our film to be different, you know, to really approach um, what he's doing in like a sort of brutal and uncool way where, you know, we're really skewering and making fun of someone who would use like violence as a shortcut while still presenting it in a kind of unique cinematic language that would be kind of you know, interesting to watch, but not interesting to like want to become, you know, which is, I think one of the dangers of these types of movies, I think actually Henry Portrait Sokar does a really good job of that too, in that there, there's something very disturbing about what he's doing and you don't really access, like you don't revel in it, you know, in a way that you might a movie like American Psycho or, um, you know, Natural Born Killers, which are both so tongue in cheek in their satire, you know? Mm. Yeah, I was I was going to ask you this question because it's kind of hard to make this kind of a movie, right? Because you don't want to glorify yeah. what he's doing, and I don't I don't personally think you do at all. Yeah. Um. The 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 problem is with some of the with with these movies a lot of times are other people, and you can't really uh you know uh change what other people think of. Like you know a movie like Fight Club obviously is not uh you know espousing fight clubs like it's not telling you to go out and start one or do anything like that but yet that's exactly what happened yeah, but but brad pitt is like super like cool and hot and like someone that like you want to become i mean that's right. part of the critique of the movie that he's also like a you know spoiler word for anyone who hasn't seen fight club like uh you know schizophrenic <laughs> schizophrenic projection of like a beta loser ed norton right. but um you know that is it, it is. It's, it's what you're saying. It is exactly. It's very tricky. Like, for instance, like, you know, in te- you know, someone attempted to assassinate President Reagan because they fell in love with Jodie Foster and wanted to become Travis Bickle in Taxi right. Driver. And while that movie is clearly a critique, it's also highly empathic. And it's also like, you know, feels scary, but also badass when he shows up with the Mohawk and does all this shit. But no one out there is trying to be Rupert Pupkin, who is like, you know, the, char- the character from King of Comedy, where it's painful to watch him yeah. um, do 
And, and that's kind of more was like the guiding force for me and Joe with Kurt, or definitely for me. I know Joe was looking more to the real influencers that or the real wannabe influencers as kind of finding the sort of scariness and also the sadness of them. But for me, it's kind of like, you don't want to make, you know, Wolf, like I love Wolf of Wall Street. That's a movie that, you know, 10% of the total population that sees that movie gets at, is a hardcore critique of like, you know, capitalistic excess and like, mm-hmm. cr- you know, criminal criminality of Wall Street. And then the other 90% just views it as pure revelry in, you know, hyper, like, you know, consumer hyper capitalism or something. And, um, you know, it's really tricky making satires. And, and I, 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 I try to approach it with real, a real, sensitivity you know i'm glad that you brought that up because that's something that i don't think i've ever really thought about before the portrayal of the character themselves being cool versus you know bringing up taxi driver versus king of comedy is a great uh, comparison there because you're absolutely right nobody wants to be rupert pupkin at all um uh, it, it, the, one question I would have, do people want to be Joker then if that's, it, well, it, it, you know? Yeah, no, I mean, we, when Joker came out, I, you know, I was like, wh- whatever, but I, I, uh, I do think that there's a really serious distinction between Spree and Joker, um, which is that like what you're saying, like the whole first part of Joker, you're just watching this character constantly being shit on, mm-hmm. you know? And like, being unable to like articulate a response to the brutalization that's happening to him. And then all of a sudden he kills someone and he goes from being a beta to an alpha and Mm -hmm. he starts dancing around and singing and like being happy. And like, that's a, you know, even though that movie I think is like, you know, critical in some ways, it's pretty irresponsible to present that model to people of like, Hey, or do you feel shit on? Well, go out there and fucking kill a bunch of people and start a revolution. Mm -hmm. Yeah. you'll start dancing kid you know it's like you are preaching to the choir by the way (laughs) i I don't really have that serious of an issue with the movie because ultimately i think you know people will find their own ways to engage in immorality um for love and it's 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 more of a critique of a system than of a type of person in my opinion but um but yeah, I do think Spree is much more, you know, whatever, on the right side of history, to use like a kind of lame expression, than Joker. Um, but hopefully it's as fun or more fun than that movie, too. Yes, know? it is. Oh, it is much you. more fun than Joker. <laughs> I can tell you 100% it is much more fun than Joker. Okay, awesome. Uh, I mean, I'm obviously biased. But, uh, yeah yeah uh we are we are not and and we we believe this movie is better than joker um the uh one one of the aspects uh when we when we first uh got a press release about spree uh i i went and researched the movie and everything this was probably about a month or so ago and i saw a passing interview with joe Carey where he mentioned the mental health aspect of this movie um, what is, what are the sort of, um, I don't know, statements or research or, uh, what, what are you, what went into this uh, movie? Well, no, I think the, the research is like, like I was saying before, we watched so many videos and posts from, you know, people who kind of were oblivious to their own, um, transparent, naked thirst for um attention Mm -hmm. and you know 
Joe put himself through the ringer of making a lot of those videos, uh, you know, finding Kurt through making tutorials and reviews and unboxing and all that stuff. And that kind of ended up partly, even though those were exercises to get to character, they actually ended up in the film and the opening montage and throughout. And actually, Oh really? Those were him like trying to find the character, like the the vaping and the mouthfeel. Well, the vaping and the mouthfeel was like an onset thing that we shot, but for (laughs) instance, for instance, the um, draw my life sort of biography thing. Yeah. That was a way for Joe and I to figure out the background, the backstory of Kurt. Um, and then, of course, it became the sort of backbone for the opening montage of the oh, film. Nice. Um, nice. And then we've been actually promoting the film the last month on Instagram through this account. It's a kind of meta, almost Blair Witch like promotional campaign <laughs> called, where it's his IG is at Kurt's World 96. And we've been using so many of Joe's reviews and exercises to, um, you know, grab, grab an audience. And we have over 50,000 followers right now. And they're, oh, very, wow. they're very, very fervent, engaged fan base that believes it's all happening, you know, kind of in real time, even oh, though Joe, Joe and I made this material um, over the course of, you know, many months um, in 2019 and early 2020. Wow. That's another thing about that uh, opening montage thing is, you could you because you don't know he's unpopular or don't, no nobody watches him or anything. You don't know that at first. It doesn't look any different from any other popular uh, kind of uh, yep. video, you know, video blog and everything. It looks like he is somebody who does a popular one. I mean that that you know that marker board thing. I was like sitting there going, wow, yeah, that's probably something that people watch all the time, right? But, you know, there's a, a billion marker board things that are out exactly, there. Exactly, exactly. You know, uh, but... Uh, there are. There is literally, you know, hundreds of thousands of draw my life, you know, meme videos where people talk about their life and has, you know, 10 views. And something that really was interesting to me in those videos is how they conflate kind of really mundane events Mm-hmm. with like tragic events. So they'll talk about how, you know, they got a paper cut and then they'll talk about nine 11 as like the yeah. same sort of effect on them. Mm. Or they'll talk about, you know, how like they won, um, you know, like uh, in some game, some game ex- gaming experience they had in the next breath, they talk about how their father's dead or something. Right. So it, it's, it's weird. This weird baselining, it goes back to that earlier thing of how sharing somehow is inherently good. Um, we kind of, stop valuating the, the actual, you know, thematic value of the content and just view it all as baseline content. And that creates a really dangerous, like kind of value system. And that's also kind of why we decided to shoot with these sort of detached cameras. I mean, it so- sounds kind of like a leap and stuff, but you know, he's setting up these cameras and they're static um, as the car's moving and he's, you know, you have your phone and it's like this kind of like, there's no lens on it. There's no rack focus on it. Right. Mm-hmm. And there's this sort of like flatness to the brutal presentation of the film, which still is like edited and paced, I think in a way that's like, you know, watch very watchable, but this sort of detached and um, brutal quality, um, I think is a reflection of like, you know, social media and how it sort of like flattens all of our experiences into like, okay, how are the, how do the numbers feel about this mm. regardless of like what the subject is, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. All this time. And we haven't even mentioned Sashir Zameda yet. She's and, awesome. Yeah. yeah. God. Yeah. I, uh, you know, I've only seen her fleetingly on Saturday night live. So, uh, it was, it was very interesting to see her in a full fledged role in this movie. I, I think I'd seen her maybe in a couple other movies, 
Um, but she played she played a lead in a movie I saw called The Weekend, which was kind of like a rom com that's not too dissimilar from like, or let's say a relationship comedy, not too dissimilar from the sort of films I had made before. Mm-hmm. And when she was on screen, uh, it was like magnetic. And you could really feel her carrying and improvising in this way that um, I just immediately sensed. So mm-hmm. I was like, she's really going to be able to kind of like care. It's, it's a heavy load because, you know, she's not the, the character that carries the movie, but she is ostensibly the hero. So she gets way less screen time, but she's the one that you relate to the most um, just on a n- normal level. You know, obviously, Joe, you relate to him because he's you're looking at him all the time and you feel his sadness and you're laughing at him, but she's the hero, you know? Yeah. This is a, this is a really uh, great uh, building of a character because when she's first introduced, you know, you have, you have, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the smarmy guy in the backseat of the car who's like, I think I kind of know who you are. And then, okay, she's an up and coming stand-up comic. And she's got the uh, wonderfully titled for this movie, All Eyes on Me uh, uh, tagline. Catchphrase. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And, um, And so, you know, at first you're like, okay, well, she's, she's, uh, she's a stand-up comic, blah, blah, blah. She's the one that gets away. There's not really much left uh, to do with her character once she gets out of the spree ride. But, but it's, it's a, it's just fun seeing how much of a change she goes through all on this one day. And then, and then, I mean, like it's so many different changes, how many ups and downs her character has to go through to finally arrive at where she is by the end of the movie. Um, I uh, I just uh, just wanted to talk about her because I thought she was awesome. Yeah, well, like the intro to her, right, is like you've gone through these kind of like basically two and a half shitty passenger rides <laughs> and you know what Kurt's up to by this point. And so then when you first see her and then she's like, no, thanks, I don't want to get in. I really want the audience to be like, phew, okay, she seems yeah. normal. Like we don't want her to die. And then he follows her and, you know, the pickup artist guy's like egging him on, like go pick her up, like don't be a pussy or whatever. <laughs> and so you're like, Eric, don't get in this car. You know, you want the audience <laughs> to be like, don't get in this car. Yeah. And then he's like, well, I could take you for free. And she's like, uh, okay. And you're like, no. <laughs> and so then, so then you're kind of like, okay, like maybe this could be like the final girl or something or something like that. You know, you mm-hmm. kind of plant that idea in people's minds. Also, for the entirety of the film up until that point, you're basically claustrophobically stuck in Kurt's world, literally in his camera feed and stuff. Mm-hmm. And she, at some point, you know, puts the pickup artist guy on blast and you finally are able to take a breather and cut out of the dash cams into her phone where she's like, you know, like basically like grilling that guy. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, on a formal level and on a storytelling level, she introduces you know, kind of like a breath of fresh air into the film. And then, of course, when she kind of survives that ride, spoiler alert, um, we hope that she'll come back, you know? Yeah. Um, but working with her was really easy. Like the first day of the shoot was actually her stand-up routine. Right. Um, because we had to, Kyle Mooney had like a really complicated schedule, and so we had to do his scenes first. And so, I mean, that's really hard. It's 10 pages of stand-up material. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was able to, because she has such a, you know, she is a stand-up herself, um, nail it from beginning to end every take. And I said to her, like, you know, it'd be easy to break this up into chunks and I have the coverage and stuff. And she's like, no, let me just do it straight through. And I think that was really helpful to Joe. Um, cause you know, he was like 
he's so active in this movie that is probably his most passive scene. Mm-hmm. And so he had to really kind of go through the journey of like being an observer and then finally feeling the transformation just in his face of like, wow, someone finally notices me. I mean, like, you know, that's what happens in that scene, right? Yeah. Um, um, so Sashir's great. She's super talented. I, I'm assuming that all the uh, numerous clips of we see of her, you know, in all the different stages and everything, those those are her actual right. stand-up. Yeah. Yeah, it's a montage we made from her like, past stand-up, uh, you know, career. And I think it works really well, you know, sort yeah. of like, I mean, we're lucky. Like, you know, imagine if we hadn't cast, I mean, this wasn't really a conversation, but if we hadn't cast the comedian, we, w- we wouldn't have, like, the way we have Kurt's intro through his social media, like, Joe and I had to make that. It would have been, like, 10 million, but those are all, like, in a bedroom or in a random room. It would have been 10 million times harder to, like, cast an actress who didn't have a stand-up background and then, like, what, try to fake stand? Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. No, so- exactly. When you think about that that scene, that sequence, and I'm so glad it was uh, shot uninterrupted, uh, that's the heart of the movie almost uh, mm-hmm. because you you get her perspective almost validating Kurt's perspective mm. in a warped way, right? Mm. Yep. Where, where she's, she's saying, you know, this used to be me, that kind of thing. And she's been thinking about this for a while. And then, you know, that contrasted with Kyle Mooney, just bombing the fuck out of the <laughs> stage right before her, yeah. Uh, yeah. which, which is equally hilarious. Uh, it's just, it, it, it slows everything down to like a heartbeat. And then, you know, we're off and running to, uh, you know, to the, uh, the, the finale. But, like, I really, really dug that scene uh, and that sequence, how it played off of, you know, you don't even know at this point that Joe is there or that, uh, yeah, that yeah, yeah, uh, exactly. uh, Kurt is there. And so you, you're just mesmerized by what is on screen. And you're right. that She's the perfect person uh, to, to carry and to keep your eye on that stage the whole time. It's, it's fantastic. I mean, to me, that scene too, just to talk about it for one more second, um, when I was writing it, that was one of the most exciting scenes to me, not just because of like, you know, her performance and the content of what she's saying, but on a formal level, visual level, it's like, I knew because she has the catchphrase, all eyes on me, part of her shtick is that everyone takes out their phones and is filming it, right? So it's presented yeah, yeah, through yeah. multiple phones in an audience. And up until that point in the film, you basically had a very monolithic view of a perspective, right? Which is Kurt's perspective. But now all of a sudden you're jumping between all these other viewpoints and Kurt, who obviously has a really evil mission in that scene. And so mm. I wanted to create like a sense of identity, a sense of anxiety, like will he or won't he? Um, you know, I thought about like the scene in The Man Who Knew Too Much, where the mm. audience knows that something horrible will happen at this concert when the music hits a certain point, but no one in the crowd at the concert does. Yeah. And similarly here, we as a viewing audience of the film know what Kurt's horrible, horrific intentions are, and we keep jumping in and out of his POV, almost like a first-person shooter POV, to these other POVs that have no idea about, like, you know, the the monster that is among them, you know? And so um, just visually, I really like that scene and, and hopefully it does. I mean, so far I feel people have talked to me about it. So I hope it creates tension for viewers. Mm-hmm. You know? Well, yeah, especially, uh, you know, considering what Dave Chappelle just came out with on Netflix, that's what sort of uh, that reminded me of was, uh, you know, she went up there and decided that she was just going to be decidedly unfunny, but like, maybe not unfunny, but just, 
you just grab your attention. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Just grab your attention with something. And, you know, like the stand up uh, doesn't necessarily need to make you laugh for you to be enthralled with it. Uh, th- it's funny though the the Kyle Mooney bombing part. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Uh huh. The the uh, the I, I've got to ask like how that process was. Did he write that material? Uh, did you get? I mean, you guys must have been like almost laughing at how unfunny it was. No, no, we definitely were, and that was a big decision in the edit. I was like, look, we have to remove all laughter from this so that it's explicit to uh, at home audience that the film. <laughs> presents this as bombing, mm-hmm. even if you are laughing at it on your own. So, I mean, yeah, that duality of it is an intention. But um, Kyle is super funny. I mean, look, Kyle's character, right, is basically like Kurt, Kurt Kunkel without the violence. Right. right. Yeah. It's like really pathetic, dope, like looking for attention and validation and like being really naked about how desperate he is. Mm-hmm. Um, Kyle, yeah, I think came up with all, all of that material. Um <laughs> And, you know, he has like a character on SNL that's kind of like a bad stand up. Mm-hmm. And I just said to him, like, let's, you know, very explicitly like avoid that energy and let's turn it into like, a, you know, like, like, who is this person? Right. He's a guy in L.A. who emcees um, a, a open mic or comedy night or whatever. And maybe he's seen a bunch of comics make it and, um, you know, in the world, but he himself never will. And like, what kind of material does that guy do where he's like constantly like, you know, maybe cribbing from other people's acts. <laughs> yeah. So it should, it should feel kind of stale, like the joke about porn. Right. That's what I was about to say. Yeah. It's like, it's just like porn. That's weird. Right. You know, yeah. and you're like, oh God. Yeah, yeah. It, it is weird, man. You're right. Um, yeah. When we talk about Sashir Dezamata is being the hero of the story and you mentioned Kurt is a loser. Almost every male character in this movie is a loser, including his dad, David Arquette's character, uh, who who goes from, you know, the intro of, uh, you know, the 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 drawing board uh, type of description to where you don't even realize how much of a loser this poor guy is. Uh, and I say poor in, in air quotes, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, his relationship with Kurt is not something that you see every day, specifically on film. Uh, it's complicated. It's not necessarily completely antagonistic but it's also not completely it's certainly not healthy no yeah <laughs> it's, it, there's there's just there's just so many layers to this and i think both of them play very very well off of each other and that's a little extra layer to his pathology uh that that kind of turns the movie into more of a character study than it already was no i really appreciate you saying that like i do think there's something um when i was watching uh, Joe and David act in that scene where they drive up Mulholland Drive at night, you know, to the to the dance club or whatever, the strip club actually, yeah. the, empty, yeah. empty, the empty strip club. Um, yeah, um, are sad. Um, I knew, I knew that. Um, I felt that. Wow, this is actually a really unique scene between father and son because, like, whatever. I've had these scenes where you just drive along with your dad. And there's this like awkward tension and you guys are trying to connect, but like you really can't. And like, you know, an audience is like kind of stuck observing that and kind of like laughing, laughing until things maybe take a a crazier turn. Um, So, yeah, I mean, David is really fun guy and super good improver like Joe and like Sashir. And so, you know, they were just able to discover things. And before the movie even started, um, 
Joe and David had never met and they were supposed to be father and son, right? So I said, why don't we all go out on a night on the town in character and film it? And so about <laughs> two, two weeks before principal photography began, we did that. And it was so inspiring just to see them act as these, as this father, son, you know, like just kind of, you know, David's character, Chris Gunkel, right? Is this washed up nineties DJ. And he is, you know, just as desperate for attention as Kurt and just as childish about yeah. it maybe more childish about it and um, going out, like we went to a Thai food restaurant. We went to, uh, you know, randomly David Arquette got a text from someone that he made a music video from in the nineties. They made a music <laughs> video together. And I said, David, like, could you text them back and see if they want to like, sh- like show it to us? And he's like, yeah, they probably won't have a VCR. And I'm like, could you just text them? And so he did it. And the person was like, yeah, come over. So we went over <laughs> this random person in the Valley's house that David hadn't seen in like years to watch this music video in actuality made by David Arquette, but ostensibly made by Chris Kunkel, the character, and his son, Kurt Kunkel, watching it and being like, who are these people? Like, is this what was cool in the 90s? <laughs> and all this shit. And then, uh, like, last week on the uh, at Kurt's World 96 Instagram, we presented that whole thing as a live stream to the oh, audience. Wow. It was like a 25-minute movie over the, course of, <laughs> over the course of an hour and a half where we kept going in and out of liveness. Um, and people really thought it was happening. And, you know, it was is really cool to um, just have two actors vibe with each other like that. And I think, you know, it feels like a really lived in, um, you know, bad father-son relationship as opposed to two actors just reading lines, I think. Absolutely. You're getting a lot of mileage out of this marketing stuff. I tell you what, yeah. <laughs> between well, the Instagram yeah. and all the different avenues that you can go with this. I mean, this can go on in perpetuity, really. Uh, I hope it ends on, on Friday, really, because it's like, <laughs> it's like I'm, 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 I'm feel, I, I love these interviews and stuff, but doing that account and stuff is really exhausting because I want it to be real. I treat it like a second movie. So I wanted to feel really authentic and really narrative based, you know? Uh, and this whole thing was shot on GoPros and iPhones and stuff like yep. that, right? Yep, yeah. Yeah. Very challenging, but um, you know, I think it contributes to the authenticity factor and the kind of horror of it is that it feels real. Right. You, you have more, you have more like coverage and footage to sort through in that instance. Right. Because you, unless you're, unless you're just specifically just uh, using one camera, the whole time, but I didn't know if you were using like five at once or what. Well, we had certain scenes where we went past the alphabet, right? So that's how you designate cameras. Damn. So, wow. so we had double A's, we had double, we had A, B, A, D, or whatever. So, um, yeah, we like in the taco truck scene, right? Where you have all the cameras inside the car, you have him in the taco truck line, you have multiple surveillance cameras, then you have the cop car showing up with the cop body cams and stuff. We had over yeah. 26 cameras there. So, um, no, it is a lot to edit with, um, and that's great because we're also creating a language, a visual language that doesn't incorporate the things normal pe- people normally expect from a movie, which is you know master shot, uh, tracking shots, uh, crane shots, whatever. Track, you know, these things are not really part of the vocabulary, or if they are, they're tweaked, you know, for our purposes um, because it's presented right as a first person live stream. So, um, you know, it was, it was great to have all those different angles. And at the same time, it's like how you have to keep it flowing and comprehensible like a conventional film. So, um, yeah, it it was, I'm really glad we did it like that. And it, it, you know, presented its own kind of obstacles and own kind of opportunities to get creative. 
Well, this uh, this movie is really cool, and I hope uh, everybody uh, goes out and watches it in theaters. Uh, It's actually going to be in drive-ins and stuff like that, but it's also going to be on demand and digital and all that on the 14th. So yeah, um, if you have a drive-in nearby, take the trip, get out of your house, bring the kids, bring the bring the the uh, spouse. (laughs) Uh, bring the kids bring the for kid. sure like six <laughs> no, and under this got, is perfect for them <laughs> uh, any child over five will understand this like yeah, actually better, yeah better than their parents honestly yeah yeah, yeah that's uh, true so that's true. you know um bring everyone bring your friends or just go watch it alone <laughs> and <Whoa>. um <laughs> or and if you don't have a driver nearby you know it's on itunes amazon uh, video a cable on demand no, this well, is a perfect drive-in movie. This is be fantastic to watch with a bunch of people. Yeah, definitely. It was funny, just as an aside, uh, I saw that interview you had with Kevin Smith at Sundance, and there was a point where you said you watched Clerks at 12, and I was like, oh, really? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, like, you know, I, I, what, I, what I think I said there also is that, like, it was really empowering to see like dogma after clerks Mm -hmm. sort of movie watch like, Oh, I can make a movie with my friends and it could be like stupid and like maybe still good. And then you watch dogma and you're like, Whoa, it's still like a movie he made with his friends and it's still kind of stupid, but he's like talking about all sorts of different things that feel like important to him and thematic. And like, you don't really see people talk about religion or, you know, corporatism in this way in comedies ever. And Mm -hmm. so, that you know even though it's a really different type of movie spree is kind of in that lineage of like well it could be like really energetic and really like immediate and realistic feeling but also like you know talk about something like big and still be like horror or funny or whatever Mm -hmm. yeah um we'd like to thank eugene kotliarenko for coming in and giving us uh, his time on this spree is august 14th uh we really liked it uh, go out and watch it yes um but um that's going to do it for this interview it's chris atkinson and barrett share we'll see you next time thanks for listening comment on our episodes on our soundcloud page check us out on youtube twitter facebook and reddit and be sure to visit cinemasins.com Well, there was uh, uh, one of their one of their brass came out and said, "Just <laughs> gonna wait for that to go by." <laughs> There's Los Angeles for you. Sorry, sorry. We have cri- we have crime in progress nearby. Yeah, so. exactly. <laughs> <laughs>